Amen. Amen. Thank you, praise team. Good job setting the table here for our text. If you're here with us for the first time or the first time in a long time, we are working our way through the Gospel of Luke. And it is not a misprint on the screen. Yes, I know. We did this section of Scripture last week, but if you'll recall, I didn't finish it. And so I would like to return to this passage today. And there are sections that even the part I have covered already, uh, the Word of God many times is like a prism, right? You hold a prism up and a light beam hits it. And we see that the light is not actually a clear beam of light, but it is multifaceted. The, the, the different colors shoot out from there. Uh, and so we see the same thing with the Word of God this morning. Thank you. And room temperature as always. Perfect. Um, so... Let me, let me give you one more reason why we're going to stay on this passage here today because I want you to, I, I am a thorough believer in the regular systematic feeding of the Word of God to God's people, okay? So you, you need that, it's how you grow, uh, you have a difficult time understanding the larger narrative of Scripture without that, it is for all of our sanctification to make us more like Jesus, we began looking here in Luke way back in chapter 9, verse 51, where Jesus had set his face towards Jerusalem. What that means is he knows what's coming. He knows a cross awaits him in Jerusalem. He knows the suffering and the pain and the humiliation that he will face. But he is determined to go to Jerusalem anyway. And so from Luke 9, 51, all the way to Luke 19, where we're going to see Palm Sunday... That whole section of Scripture is almost a block. And what that block is doing, it is answering this question. And the question is simply this. What does it mean to follow Him, namely Jesus Christ, and to be His disciple? That's what that whole section is about from 951 all the way to Luke 19. The next question that kind of comes out of that is, where is the climax of this section of Scripture? And the answer is, this passage we're looking at today is the high point, the arch, the climax of that whole section of what does it mean to follow Jesus and what does it mean to be His disciple? So, with that in mind, let's now look at this passage again together. Even though we looked at it last week, let's look at it again closely. We will get through this whole section here together today. And I don't see my clicker, so can you just... Yes, pace with me. Thank you. Luke 49. If you don't have your Bibles, it's on the screen to my left or right or in your bulletin. This is the words of Jesus. Hear them. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it would already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give you peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For, for from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against and two against three. Then they will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you at once say a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. 
You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, that's a fancy way to say judge or government official, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Least he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Amen. May God have blessing to the reading of his holy inerrant, infallible word. If you know this next part, say it with me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Okay. We are a little over a hundred years from the anniversary of a Jesuit priest, actually a former Jesuit priest to be exact, and he was born a, an Irish Anglican switched over to Catholicism for a higher form of church than what he was used to and, um, and died in 1909. But there's a quote that he stated that is still being used today. And here is the quote. He was addressing the liberal Christian Protestant writers and academics of his day. And he said, uh, the Christ that liberal Protestants see, looking back through 19 centuries of Catholic darkness is only the reflection of a liberal Protestant face seen at the bottom of a deep well. Isn't that interesting? What is he saying there? Well, he's saying this. Protestants of his day, liberal Protestants of his day and today, when they try to think of Jesus and imagine Jesus and what he's like, they simply imagine a better version of themselves. This is not uncommon in many cultures, right? They have made Jesus into what they want. Uh, Jesus is not a better liberal than the Protestants of his day. Jesus is not a better version of conservatives of our day. Jesus is not a better Appalachian than we are. Jesus is not a better Tennessean than we are or Scotsman or uh, you pick the country. It's not, it's not who Jesus is. Jesus is utterly and completely unique, the incarnation of God in human flesh. And what Jesus is doing in this passage is he's knocking down notions and false idols that have been fashioned in the ears of the disciples and the people that have been following him, right? If someone were to walk in here today, before I began preaching and before the praise band took the stage, and they just asked you directly, why did Jesus come to earth? I doubt anyone in here would have thought of Luke 19, 49 and 50. You probably would have much preferred to give me a Christmas card version of the gospel, right? The one, let there be peace on earth, right? Like that one, right? And this passage is sharp contrast to that. Sharp contrast to that. Well, let's get into this. There's at least three parts to this passages, um, but it's about one thing, and the one thing it's about is about Jesus. It's about Jesus, who is Himself the dividing line. It's about so when we think about Him for a few moments together, let's look more closely at this. First of all, in verse fifty, I want you to see that Jesus makes it very clear that He is ready to endure suffering in His work on our behalf. 
And you probably weren't ready for that with an introduction like I had here, but, but it's a great encouragement here. Verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He's talking here, of course, about the cross that he will endure. It's a testimony here. He's saying that this distress that he will take and the suffering and the pain and the sorrow is necessary for the winning of salvation. Jesus is saying to his disciples here, especially to them, because he's directing to them first and speaking to them first. He's going to turn and address the wider crowd that surrounds them there. But he's telling them, especially and specifically here, that he is going to take this on, that he is ready and that he is willing and that he is able to endure everything necessary that, to produce forgiveness of sin for them and for us so that we may enter into an everlasting fellowship with God the Father. Now, that's a big deal. It's a huge deal. There's a hugely encouraging thing here because, you know, even today, even at this very moment, as we sit in here and worship and hear the word together, you've got to be people in this room who are distracted. You're distracted by a lot of different things. You know, I think Satan's primary business today is the business of distraction, right? If he can just get you to move away and stop thinking of the things of God, then he's done a good enough job to keep you from doing the things of God. And so you came in here this morning, you're distracted. You're distracted by burdens. You're distracted by cares in this life, things you've got on your mind. Many of you have a hundred different things that is going on. It's pulling at you in every, every direction. And you know, there's a specific encouragement here to the believer. More specifically, there's an encouragement here to the mature believer. Now let's be honest for a minute. If we had to be honest, we would say this. There are sometimes days that go by when we give a very minimal, plenary prayer throughout the day, maybe muttered over a meal. And then there are days that go by that in addition to having a, a sort of starved prayer life, we think little to nothing about lost men and women and boys and girls and do little or nothing with evangelism to reach those who are far from our Lord and Savior. And it can go on like that for days in the life of a believer, can it not? It can go on for days like that to the point that you, are almost, you almost have God and His mission and the gospel to the very edge, almost out of your mind and not part of your thinking. And Jesus here, you know what Jesus is saying in verse 50, believer? I want you to listen to this. This is very encouraging in verse 50. Jesus is saying here, you are never out of my mind. Now you may work and get distracted and be pulled a hundred different ways, but know this, you're never out of my mind. You may have almost forgotten me to the very edge of your thinking process and your daily thoughts. You may be unfaithful in loving me. But listen, dear loved one. Listen to me, beloved. I am focused in on loving you. I am focused in like a laser beam on loving you. Willing to endure the cross of Jesus Christ. That's beautiful, isn't it? That's encouragement, isn't it? While I'm on this issue of the cross and the distress here that Jesus faced, let me say one thing. I sometimes hear people say, there are other ways for salvation. 
that you can be saved in other ways, that there are other avenues. That is a hideously arrogant statement to make. And here's why. I want you to think about this. Those of you in particular in this room who are fathers and love your children, or mothers, you can put yourself in this position as well. If you were in some scenario, and the only scenario meant the death of your child to save all of humanity, that was the only way it could happen, and you did it, and then somebody came up to you afterward and said, I think there was another way, how would you feel? Right? What you're claiming in that statement is this. You have some knowledge that God the Father didn't have. That as he was looking down through the eons of time and seeing all the different scenarios of how mankind and sin would play out, what would bring him the most glory, what would, what would redeem a, a mankind to him from every tribe, tongue, and nation, singing his praise forever, he saw and knew that there was only one way to satisfy his wrath and atone for sin, and it was the death of his precious son, Jesus Christ. So do you see why that's an, an arrogant statement to make? That salvation can come any other way. That's why it says in Hebrews 4.12, there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved, men being all-encompassing men, women, boys, and girls. There's no other name by which we can be saved except the name of what, church? Jesus. Right? This was God's plan. So the baptism he was going to endure was the baptism of the cross, which he was hearing the words of blessing pronounced on him but instead of hearing the words of blessing pronounced on him he hears curses instead as he's on the cross right we all love the passage that says the lord bless you and keep you but when jesus is on the cross it's not the lord bless you and keep you it's instead the lord's curse be on you and he cast you off that's what jesus faced on the cross this is why he's distressed the verse goes on to say and we receive this because of his distress the lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you we love that don't we we get that benefit because of the distress he was under. But what did Jesus face on the cross? The Lord frowned upon him and treated him with no grace and mercy, but rather with judgment and condemnation. Though judgment and condemnation meant for you and I is what Jesus received there. And then the Lord turned his face away from you and take all peace instead of the Lord give you a countenance and give you peace. God faced all that on, Jesus faced all that on the cross when he died and he suffered for him. And this is what he endured on our behalf. And, and then he goes from this passage here, which is a passage of great assurance. It's a passage of great help. All that is meant for us to do is repent and believe. We have a ready-made identity that we can now move into. The only thing that's required here is to be in agreement with God about our sin. There's no other system you can slip into where your identity is ready-made, Right? Jesus gives it here. You can slip into this and know Jesus Christ and have his identity as your own now. And then he goes on to verse 51. To me, this is shocking and jarring what he says next after an encouraging verse like 50 that is, it is so helpful. Look what he says. Do you think I have come to give you peace on earth? No. <laughs> I tell you, but rather, what's it say, church? Division. What? I don't know, Pastor. I like postcard Jesus better at Christmas time than this Jesus, right? This is hard. This is harsh, right? Why is he saying this? Here's why he's saying this. Remember who he's talking to. He's talking to his disciples. These are going to be the, the men by God's choosing who will go out and who will preach the word. 
And whenever they go out and they preach the word, what is their message? That God came in human form, was a Jewish rabbi, preacher, countryside teacher, died on a cross, executed by the Romans, and was raised on the third day, and he's your only hope for salvation. And when he says that in the first century Greco-Roman world, people are going to say by the hundreds and thousands, ha, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. I don't want anything to do with that. You're insane. They're going to reject him. Jesus is preparing the disciples for the rejection that is going to come in the preaching of the gospel. It's going to happen. It's going to happen now. But he makes it even more clear where this dividing line is going to be. It's not just going to be with strangers you see on the street or what I like to call drive-by evangelism, which was real popular when I was younger, you know, where you knock on a door and try to win people to Jesus and put notches on your belt. You all remember that, right? Not not just drive-by evangelism and rejection there. It's a deeper rejection. Look at 52. From now on, in one house there will be five divided against three against two and two against three. Okay. Most of us in here, not all of us, but most of us in here, are mountain people, right? Come from the Appalachian Mountains, part of our identity. What is the mountain people's gift to America? We're people of roots, aren't we? You know, Jesus told the rich young ruler, he said, you're going you're to need to sell everything you got and follow me. Give all that money to the poor and follow me. Why? He saw that was the barrier in his heart for him to follow Jesus. That was the idol that stood in the way. It was money. Who's Jesus talking to in this passage? Is Jesus addressing rich senators in Rome who have lots of money? No. He's addressing who? He's addressing poor Palestinian Jewish believers who have little to nothing. But you know what they do have? They have what we have in the mountains, what we've had for generations in the mountains, right? When the Depression came through here, I was just talking about this with Jerry Lyons, pastor in the first service. He's 85 years old. He lived through the Great Depression. You know what he told me? He said, we didn't really know we were poor because everybody here in the mountains was poor. My neighbor was poor. Their neighbor was poor. Their neighbor's neighbor was poor. Everybody was poor. But we had land and we could produce some food and we got by if you have land and food and not a lot of money what's your treasure what is it it's your family your family's your treasure that's where your treasure's at it's your kin it's your folks it's your blood and what's jesus saying in this passage from now on in one house there will be a dividing line. The rich young ruler had to give up his money to stand for Christ. What might we have to do here in Palestine to stand for Christ? We may have to proclaim Jesus and suffer the rejection, not of strangers, but people in the, in a, in the four walls of our household. That's what he's saying. Come to create that kind of division. Oh, we're all preparing for... My favorite holiday, probably, Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving because it's all the benefits of the meal of Christmas without the pressure of the presents, right? It's much more laid back, much more my style, right? I have a lot invested here. They keep saying I need to lose weight, but every time I go in, I say, Doc, I got a lot invested here. There's a lot of dinners here, right? You're asking a hard thing. Thanksgiving dinner, you walk in, looks something like this. Now listen. We're glad you're spiritual now. We've got some religion. That's good. But just don't 
don't be fanatic at dinner table, okay? Don't, like, don't talk about the gospel and Jesus being the only way. You know how your uncle is. You know he's a Buddhist. That's his commitment. You know how your aunt is. Don't, don't fan that flame, okay? Just don't do it, right? Because fanatic means somebody who just loves Jesus a little more than I do, and I'm not comfortable with that. That's a term in our culture for fanatic. That's what that means, okay? You know what? Share Jesus anyway, right? Share Jesus anyway. You say, I'm going to divide our, our almost treasure here, our family, our people, our kin, the thing that we have the most, right? This is not a cheap grace you've been called to. It's a costly grace, right? It's a costly grace. Look what he says here in verse 53. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughters, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The whole household being divided there. The family being divided. Divided over what? Jesus Christ as the dividing line. Are we willing to do that, though? You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a great pastor, theologian of yesterday. He died in World War II. He was trying to stop the Nazi campaign and the Germans from uh, killing the Jewish people off. And he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in his book, he talks about avoiding cheap grace and what that is. And here's what he says. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross and grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in a field for the sake of a man who will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy with which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly role of Christ for whom sake a man such pluck out a man pluck out his eye which causes him to stumble it is the call of jesus at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again the gift which must be asked for the door which a man must knock such grace is costly because it calls for us to follow and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life and it, it is grace because it grows, it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sins and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it is, costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price and what the cost of God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. So no, don't settle this holiday season for cheap grace, right? Don't settle for that. Jesus says here, you, you may have to be divided off from your family, and that's okay because Jesus is enough, and his grace is enough, and it is sufficient. Now, I'm not saying go pick fights at Thanksgiving, right? Don't hear me say that. It's not what I'm telling you to do. But I am telling you, if opportunity arises and the conversation can be steered towards Jesus, steer it that way and give him glory and honor, 
All right. Look, look here. Let's move on here. Verse 54. He said to the crowd. So he's done with the disciples, turns to the crowds. And he says, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. Verse 55. And when you see that south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. Verse 56. You hypocrites. All right, let's stop. Clearly Jesus is mad because people are able to predict the weather here, right? That's what this text states and is clearly about, right? Swing and a miss. No. This is about discernment. Here's what Jesus is saying. You can look at the sky and you can discern what the weather's going to be for the entire day. But here you have me, God incarnate, blood type, fingernails, hair, eye color, just like you. And you can't tell who I am. You can read the clouds. You're, and listen, we have, we have the weather channel now, which is like a blessing that they never understood in that time period. And I don't see as many people in this one. I don't think anybody in here may be retired. But in the last service, there are retired people that watch that. Like that's their favorite channel. And they watch it every day because they're waiting to see when they can get out and cut the lawn in the summertime. It's like all they're obsessed with it, right? It's their thing. If you don't know what the weather's going to be like, call your retired grandpa. He'll tell you. He knows, right? Most of them are just watching it hours on end. And it's a big, you know, we're almost to the point in the year where the the meteorologists are going to get dramatic, right? When the snowstorms come in, right? Here comes snowstorm Nina, right? Go now, get your bread, get everything before it comes, right? People freak out, oh, we'll never be able to get to the grocery store again, quick, right? Bread and milk, everybody freaks out. People spend more time in discernment and distress over weather than they do the dividing line of eternity, Jesus Christ. That's the point he's making here. We live in a time where there's abundant information at our fingertips. It is available at all times. You can find information on the most random things, Right? Do you know what a group of porcupines is called? It's called a prickle. Isn't that weird? You can look up stuff like that whenever you want. Weird, random stuff. And you have time that you can find that whenever you want. But there's not a lot of discernment. There's a lot of information, but there's not a lot of discernment. It's applying the gospel to daily living. There's another danger here, okay? These crowds would have grew up in a Jewish background which means they would have been carried to temple when they were young, which means they would have been familiar with the scrolls, which means some of them would have memorized Deuteronomy chapter 6 and been familiar with Micah and Isaiah and all those passages that tell us of the coming king. Those of you who have been coming on Wednesday nights, we've been looking at Micah as he's preparing us for when Jesus comes. And they would have known that. And these people would have had all of those scriptures and been familiar with them. And here is the one who Micah and Isaiah prophesied about. Here is the one that the last of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, pointed to physically and said, he's the one. He must increase and I must decrease, right? I must go down, he must go up. So they've had the scriptures to tell them who Jesus is. They have had the last of the Old Testament prophets to physically point a finger and say, he's the one. And yet still, in the midst of all that, these people don't get it. They don't get the fact that it's as simple as he is here right in front of them right now. Some of us here this morning are similar. You have been to church as a child. You have been familiar with the scripture. You have had faithful believing parents or grandparents who have talked to you about Jesus over and over and over again. 
but it hasn't made a lot of sense to you. It hasn't made a, a lick of a hill of beans to you because you haven't recognized your need for a Savior and you haven't recognized your problem of sin in your life. So you've heard it, and maybe when you were a kid, you even memorized some verses for some candy because a lot of churches do that, right? You memorize this verse, we give you candy. But you didn't know what you were saying. You didn't get it because you hadn't given your life to Christ. There wasn't discernment with that, right? You hypocrite. What's hypocrite mean? It means play acting. It's the same terminology they would have used to describe, you know, Greek tragedy plays. They're, they're hypocrites on stage. They're play acting a part. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. You do not know how to interpret this present time, this time right now. My question then for you is this. How about you? Are you play acting this morning? Or do you know this Jesus who said he came to bring division, who came and has a laser focus on your salvation, who put himself under great stress and duress to the point of death so that you could have a relationship with God and bring glory to him? Do you know him today? Or are you play faking? Verse 57 Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Again, discernment. Verse 58, he goes and makes it more clear. As you go with your accuser before the magistrates, make every effort to settle with him on the way. At least he drag you and judge and judge hand you over to the officer and the officer puts you in prison. The scene here is that you've got an offense, you owe money, or some kind of offense. About We have a lawyer in the other service, Roger Day, he always said money is the great soother in any kind of a court case. If you can just lay enough money down, it seems to soothe problems right away. Here Jesus is telling us what? There is an ultimate trial that we'll go to. Who will be on trial? You will. I will. We will face an ultimate trial. And when we face this trial, you've got two options. You can go in with what you've got, but understand this, you owe the Lord a great debt. Sin is regularly talked about in the scriptures in terms of debt. Sometimes we think if we could just do enough good, we'll tip the scales in our favor and we'll be able to kind of go to this judgment meet with God and he'll let us slip right into heaven. Jesus is saying here, you better settle out with an advocate before you even get in the courtroom. And in this case, the courtroom is going to be your death. When you die, you will stand before a holy God and there will be courtroom time. And Jesus is telling them here, so here's what you need to do. You need to discern right now, today, who do you want to represent you? Who do you want to settle in court with, right? Better to settle out of court before you get to court so the case can just be dismissed and we can move on. The, the advocate that's being offered here is better than a lawyer, the advocate that's being offered here, Jesus is offering what? Himself to be your advocate. He's saying, you need to discern this. You need to take this offer now. You need to come to Christ now. You need to be in fellowship with God now. Uh, there's no working this debt off, right? Many of us envision that our debt to God is maybe like a mortgage payment, like we can maybe live enough years, and we can pay off a 30-year mortgage, even though it's a lot of money, we can kind of work that off. No, friend. No, no, no. Your, your sin debt to a holy God, an eternal holy God, is more like a national deficit. If you had 100 lifetimes, you wouldn't be able to work that thing off. It would take the work of an entire nation, generations to work it off. You'll never work it off yourself. And Jesus is saying here, don't be cast away until every penny is collected. Newsflash, if you're cast away into hell, the only way that every penny is collected from you when you've offended a holy God is if you stay in hell for eternity. 
Now, I'm not trying to scare you or be mean or anything, but I am trying to make it clear. You know, fake acting is not something that just happens to people sitting in chairs and pews at churches. It happens to preachers. And I would be a hypocrite of a preacher. I would be fake acting and playing if I told you anything different this morning. If I told you anything different than this, that the Jesus of the Bible is... That there is no other Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible, right? The ones that liberal Protestants make up, the ones that any other cult makes up, it's not the Jesus of the Bible. And the Jesus of the Bible is the only Jesus that we can truly have eternal life with. Now let me say this too, because I'd be a hypocrite if I didn't say this next part. Following this Jesus, giving your life to this Jesus, it's going to be costly, It's going to cost you friends. It's going to cost you family. It's going to cost you positions at work sometimes when you're asked to do things that are not right and you won't do them. And it will cost you, but even though it will cost you, we know this. God will provide for you, right? Jesus is saying here, yes, it's very costly, but this is a great Savior. And the end thought I want to leave you with this. Even though it's costly, Jesus will see you through. Won't he? You can say amen if you want. Okay, I'll say that last line again. That'll be your cue to say amen. All right, ready? Even though it's costly, Jesus will see you through. There it is. Okay, good. Man, we're going to have to get some ameners in here because it is rough up here when there's no call response, okay? So when I call truth, I need amen back, all right? Okay, just, it's okay. Nobody's going to eat you, all right? It'll be fine, okay? All right, with that thought, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this word. Lord, it is no accident that we landed here this morning to hear the gospel, that, Lord, it was so costly, this grace. May we never cheapen it by trying to adapt Or imagine a Jesus that is not who you present yourself to be, that is a Jesus who lacks the truth that is on your lips here in Luke chapter 12. But rather, may we be a people instead who understand it is costly, but have a great trust and faith in you. Help to strengthen our faith and resolve today. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Closing here, we're going to have a song of response to the word preached. I want to say a couple things. One, it's no accident you're here today to hear this message of truth, whether you're listening and watching online or whether you're here physically with us. God has been gracious to you another Sunday to hear the truth. Maybe you've been play acting for a long time. Nobody really knows it, but you and Jesus, won't you come today and know him and have salvation? Or maybe this is the day uh, where... You just want to thank him that he has saw you, that he brought you through so much. You can come up here and pray at the altar. It'll be fine. I'll be happy to pray with you in the back as we sing in response. Please stand.